Hey everyone, welcome back to the Health Hack Podcast. My name is Andy Kraft. And I'm Aaron Kraft. Today, we're gonna cover the risk of broken heart syndrome, uh, eating tart cherries for more brain power, increasing muscle strength in just three seconds, how FODMAPs impact symptoms of IBS, and New York City's new Meatless Friday initiative. So let's get into it. Well, first of all, happy Valentine's Day, everybody. I know this is, for some, a, a beautiful day. For others, the worst day of the year. Um, love is hard to find. It is. Uh, if you guys have seen the show or the movie on Netflix, The Tinder Swindler, then you know this. Um, it's it's a good good documentary. I, I highly recommend it. Maybe give you some tips or red flags on how to use Tinder, which is maybe not to use Tinder, but you know, whatever you want to do. I know some people who have met on that and uh, got married, so there's some pros and cons to it. But anyway, love is hard to find and add the pandemic into the mix. And it's really made it very challenging over the past two years to find somebody. And interestingly, because of this, there has been a, a, a massive influx or increase of a condition called broken heart syndrome. And this is this is actually a real thing. Broken heart syndrome is when there is a constriction on the arteries of the heart. And it results in shortness of breath. It results in chest pain. It can actually like mimic a heart attack. So some people will actually call the emergency room thinking they're having a heart attack. And really, it's this broken heart syndrome. And um, this is essentially the root cause of this when you get down to it it is caused by a sudden onset of stress and extreme emotions. So that's why COVID, we've seen an uptick in this, not necessarily because of actually a broken heart, though that can that can be the cause of this. A broken heart can lead to this. But in the past two years, it is the, the stress and the emotions of dealing with COVID, and it's caused a significant increase in cases of this. Um, now, people typically... Um, recover from this very quickly. Um, once the stress kind of dies down, so does the the uh, the symptoms associated with it. But for a small subset of people, you can get actually very sick with this. So um, kind of an interesting correlation. Another, I guess, downside of what we've seen as a result of the pandemic and the lockdown. This is another side effect that has kind of gone under the radar. Um, so if you are dealing with stress from the pandemic, just with anything going on in the past two years, um, really important to try to get that under the control. Easier said than done, but um, dealing with that stress as soon as possible is is very helpful. Whether that's through a therapist, through other types of remedies, but um, yeah, stress can actually have a very uh, strong physical impact on the body. Yeah, I think this is the one thing that is really hard to get under control. Like we, there mm. are things that we can do to, uh, you know, fix our sleep. For instance, managing blue light exposure or just working on going to bed earlier. There are things that we can specifically do to adjust our nutrition or our exercise routine. But I was talking to someone the other day. Uh, we were talking about this, about stress. And she said, I feel like that's the one thing that I just can't control. Mm, yeah, and it it feels like for for if you're dealing with chronic stress, it feels like it controls you, and to I mean to an extent, you know, it does. There are circumstances in your life that you can't control, but the key is really 
figuring out ways to respond to that stress. And I think that's a lot harder than making nutrition decisions. Like there's easy, like, okay, eat whole foods. That's a, that's a thing that pretty much anyone can, can go out and do, or just, you know, get outside, walk around sunlight, uh, exercise. Like those are things that we, we know what to do, but managing stress is such a individualistic thing mm-hmm. that it's just not easily fixed. It's not like you just do one thing like with exercise and okay, I did my exercise for the day. It is, it, I feel like it just takes so much more intention. And yeah. that's why I think so many people struggle with this. And it's just that lingering thing that a lot of people don't ever get dealt with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of the few things that is, it's not a physical thing. It's a, it's a, an emotional thing where, so like nutrition, that's a physical action. Even if you don't want to eat healthy, you can kind of force yourself to. Same thing with exercise, same thing with sleep. Like those are physical things that you really can force yourself if you really try hard that i mean obviously there's an emotional aspect to it but stress is purely an emotional thing so i mean around the clock you're you're trying to fight trying to fight against it and it's yeah it's it's really challenging and a lot of people just live with it and it can result into a physical condition yeah so i think it is important to find ways to to manage that whether through hobbies through therapy through meditation mm-hmm. whatever it may be but yeah that's um it's an important thing that we should we should really kind of add into the uh, the stack of things we can do for our health. Yeah. All right. Speaking of nutrition, uh, interesting study that came up. Actually, my my two stories this week relate to nutrition. So there was this interesting study I came across uh, that, that dropped this week about tart cherries. So there are these are different than like your black cherries. There there's a specific uh, species or uh, species of of cherries. Yeah, called tart monomerense cherries and these cherries are are they're ri- like i guess most cherries are berries they're rich in polyphenols they have uh, an antioxidant anti-inflammatory effect and this study looked at how consistent consumption of these these cherries specifically could impact cognitive function and mood because uh, there's uh there's theories that polyphenols from berries can improve your cognitive function so they looked at tart cherries in particular and it was a a three-month double-blind placebo-controlled trial. So they had a placebo group, a uh, a cherry group, 25-25. So small study, but well-conducted. And they they all did a cognitive test beforehand. And then they took third. Now they did tart, tart dirt, cherry concentrate or tart cherry juice, but it was that's all it was. It was 30 milliliters twice a day of tart cherry concentrate, which is like I think it's like a fourth a cup, which you could get from a standard serving of tart cherries. That you can actually get it like the store at the Costco at Costco or something. After three months, the cherry group had higher accuracy on cognitive tests, uh, lower false alarms, like in the lower errors in the tests, higher alertness. Now that was self-reported and lower mental fatigue. That was self-reported. But those were better in the cherry group. Even the self-report was better in the cherry group than the placebo group. Now, there was no change in sleep, which I found interesting because a lot of people uh, look at tart cherry juice because it, it has some melatonin in it. And I would expect that if you take that, that you your sleep would increase. But there was no change in sleep quality uh, based on what they found. No change in cerebral cerebral blood flow, like a blood flow through the brain. Um, and now that is difficult to measure. They kind of identified that in the study and said it's really difficult to do to do this right. 
But there was uh, an increase in amino acids. So they did blood work before and after too. And there was an increase in um, amino acids, methylhistidine, phenylalanine, betaine. That's how you say that. Uh, L-serine, uh, choline. Yeah, those are those five. There's an increase in amino acids after the three months of eating uh, cherry juice. So there's an upregulation of choline, betaine, and serine. And what they found is that these, well, th these amino acids have been known to correlate to attention and cognition, um, the choline, betaine, and serine specifically, and then histidine supplementation in the past and previous studies has been shown to improve feelings of, of mental fatigue or reduced mental fatigue. So it was interesting that not only was that self-reported, did they perform cognitive tests, but what they attributed that to was the increase in these amino acids that are known to impact attention, cognitive function, and mental fatigue. So thought that was that was really interesting. Um, I've never really taken this consistently or, or I know there are people that drink tart cherry juice before bed for sleep. Uh, dad is obsessed with these. Have you heard about this obsession he has? Oh yeah. I, mean, I think every night he eats like a huge bowl of these before bed. Yeah. He gets these bag, this big bag of frozen tart cherries at Costco. And then he just basically like eats them or like sucks on them, uh, frozen kind of like a little midnight snack. We were, mm -hmm. he was, he was down here or, or I was up north last week and it was like the biggest blizzard that we've ever had. And he was intent on going to Costco in the middle of this <laughs> blizzard because he was out of his tart cherries. So he literally oh, went man. out to Costco in this blizzard. We had to like unbury the car. <laughs> well, his car got stuck in the driveway. <laughs> <laughs> he was so like excited to go get his tart cherries. Oh, that's hilarious. His car got stuck in the driveway. <laughs> like eventually bar unburied his car and got to Costco and he said he was the only one at Costco. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's a real addiction, but yeah, it's Whoa. a real problem. We're going to have Whoa. an intervention for him. <laughs> Hopefully it's uh, doing some good on the brain. No, yeah, it's supposedly can help with cognitive function. So I might try adding this in as a little uh, midnight snack. Yeah. All right. Um, well, let's move on to our third story here. Um, all right. So this one actually was not <clears throat> in the newsletter at all, but it, I stumbled across it. It was headlines in many places, and it was basically saying something along the lines of increase muscle strength in just three seconds. Um, now, this is a headline in many places for obvious reasons. It's a quick fix, like, oh, three seconds and I can get strong. Um, that's what all these headlines are saying. And there is some truth to this. I'll get into the study here, but it can potentially lead to some false expectations. So essentially what the study was is that they took 39 healthy people, um, students actually, um, and then they had 13 in another group. So 13 students did nothing. 39 did this strength regimen. And what they did is that they just performed a single muscle contraction at maximum effort for three seconds, um, once a day, five days a week for four weeks. What they, in this case, what they did was a bicep curl. So they literally did one maximum effort bicep curl a day, five days a week for a week. Um, and they did differentiate types of bicep curls. So there's isometric, cent, um, concentric, and uh, eccentric movements. So isometric is where you just basically hold the dumbbell in your arm flexed. 
you're just holding it, nothing, not moving the, the muscle at all. So you'd hold it for three seconds. Um, and then there's concentric, which is where you're pulling the, bi- the the dumbbell up towards you. So you're shortening the muscle. And then eccentric is when you're lengthening the muscle. So you, you're descending with the dumbbell. So there's kind of three types of strength movements there. So they tested all three of them um, between the 39 students. And then 13, like I said, did no exercise at all. And they did measure their strength. So they measured their maximum effort bicep curl strength before and after doing this four-week experiment. And what they found was that <clears throat> and what they found was that muscle strength increased more than 10% for those who did the eccentric bicep curl. As for the concentric and isometric, um, they did increase their strength as well, but it was less than 10%. So it was the uh, the eccentric bicep curl that was the most effective, and it increased strength by ten percent. And then for the no exercise group, as you would expect, there was there was no increase in strength. It it stayed the same for them. So basically, at the end of the study, the author quotes or kind of summarizes that they say the study results suggest that a very small amount of exercise stimulus, even sixty seconds in four weeks, could increase muscle strength. Uh, you know, many people, he says, many people think that you have to spend a lot of time exercising, but that's not the case. Short and good quality exercise can still be good for your body. Um, and every muscle contraction counts. Now, maybe there's some truth to that. Like for somebody who's not doing anything, sure. One bicep curl, one heavy squat a day is better than nothing, um, <clears throat> and it's interesting findings here. Like it's interesting that you could just do one thing and it increases your strength. But what I don't like about studies like this, or at least headlines like this is that they they can be very misleading. It's people will read this headline of, Oh, just three seconds of workout a week. And then I'm good. Like that's, that's the conclusion to the study is you don't need to work out much. Just do three seconds and you're good to go. And I think it can, um, just provide, provide, false affirmation for people who are doing the bare minimum it kind of affirms like oh yeah i i do strength once a week but based on the study it's fine like i do more than three seconds so i'm good to go um so even though there is some truth to this nothing is better than or something is better than nothing i just i don't like headlines like this that confirm people's i guess lack of effort if that makes sense yeah the takeaway that I have from this is something is better than nothing. That's basically what they mm-hmm. proved. Like, right. It's not optimal. Like, I don't think that they're saying this is all you need to do to be optimal. Like we talked mm-hmm. about, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, you really should be doing balance work, strength work, cardio work, agility, speed, all these different things. And this is just touching on one attribute of a single muscle in a very short amount of time. And basically they proved you know, moving is better than not moving. Like mm-hmm. something is yeah. better than nothing. Uh, but that doesn't mean that that is what you should be doing. That that doesn't mean like, hey, cut the 30 minute lifts in the gym or hour lifts in the gym to just do three seconds. That's just as good. It's just, hey, it's better mm-hmm. than sitting there. Yeah. 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 So don't don't change your, I guess, habits based on this is what I'd conclude. Like if you're doing, you know, 30 minutes of strength training three days a week, like keep doing it. Don't don't cut back because of this study. Um, or on the contrary, if you have a day where you don't have a full 30 minutes, mm-hmm. 
maybe or, or yep. maybe you only have 15 minutes you know don't think oh it's not even worth doing yeah yeah that's you, true. you could just go out there hey i'm just gonna do something like that is worth it true you know yeah so you could yeah take it the other way all right yeah that's a good one all right moving back to nutrition so We've talked a lot about, or at least put a lot of studies out there on IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. It uh, seems like it's way more common than it used to be. And I don't know if that's because people are more comfortable talking about it over dinner, but like people just bring it up like, hey, I have IBS. Like, okay, thanks for letting me know. <laughs> it's just people are, people are, I guess, more, um, I mean, I, it's more common. And I don't know if that's from our diet or what, but trying to figure out a good way to manage it is tricky. and. There's been a lot of recommendations for like, uh, you know, removing sugar, remove gluten, and a big one lately is removing FODMAPs. So FODMAPs are um, a group of short chain carbohydrates and sugar alcohols. So it stands, FODMAP is a acronym. It stands for fermentable, meaning so they're, they're broken down or fermented by bacteria in the large bowel. Oligosaccharides, uh, oligo meaning few, saccharide meaning sugar. So these molecules are made up of individual sugars joined together in a chain. And then disaccharides, uh, meaning double sugar molecules, monosaccharides, meaning single sugar molecule, and then polyols. Uh, and these are sugar alcohols. So sorbitol, uh, mannitol, you've, see, you've seen these sugar alcohols probably. Erythritol, I believe, is one. So that all of those things, food in those groups are FODMAPs. And they're things that are not even necessarily bad, like it, in processed foods, like garlic and onion. Those are um, those are including included in FODMAPs. Um, a lot of like vegetables and and things that you wouldn't necessarily think, but this has been shown in several studies to reduce the symptoms of IBS. And what this study looked at specifically was how does that compare to gluten? And so they compared, it was actually a three-way crossover. So they had a group in the FODMAP, a group in gluten, and then a group in you know, a placebo group. And then they actually all did everything. So they all rotated. They each did the diet for a week. They had a one-week washout, and then they did the other diet for a week. So they they rotated. And what they found is that of all, all those three, FODMAPs, so including FODMAPs in the diet, worsened IBS symptoms the most. There was a modest increase, a worsening of IBS symptoms in the FODMAP group, more so than gluten and placebo. And what was really interesting here is that gluten didn't worsen IBS symptoms more than the placebo, hmm. which I found very interesting because a lot of people feel bad eating gluten, which I, it doesn't necessarily relate to IBS always, but um, I would think that people with IBS would improve from gluten. Now, they did say that the the responses were very indiv individualistic. So it's hard to just take a summary, take the averages of the group. And especially since it's kind of a small group, it's 103 participants here. Um, on average, most people benefited from removing FODMAPs than, than gluten. But they did say that everyone was a little bit different. And the reason you may be wondering why are FODMAPs Bad. So it's kind of just a little background around that. FODMAPs are fermented by the bacteria in the large bowel, and that contributes to the production of, of gas. So that can be uncomfortable, especially if you have IBS. And then they also, these FODMAPs attract water uh, in the large bowel, which can 
can alter kind of how the bowel moves or, or moves food through. So those two things can kind of trigger sim- symptoms, like including you know, gas, bloating, abdominal pain, diarrhea, constipation, or, or all those things. So if you have IBS, eating those kind of foods that do that are going to worsen those symptoms. So that's kind of the, the takeaway. Really what it comes down to, I think here, my takeaway is it depends. But if you have IBS, eliminating your FODMAPs is a is worth a try. Um, I know it's really tough, like, because my, um, our, our mom, she w- experimented with it for a little bit. I don't think she really stuck with it. But like, I was looking at I had gotten her a FODMAP, low FODMAP recipe book. That's what, what you would call it, is a low FODMAP diet. And it's tough. There are a lot of like seasonings that mm-hmm. contain FODMAP. So it's very difficult. I think this is more difficult than like a standard paleo or um, what are some other restrictive diets? I don't know, like a Mediterranean, even like a vegan diet, even, like even just like a gluten-free diet. Like just removing gluten, I think FODMAPs is a lot more is a lot more challenging. Cause yeah, I think it's like garlic, onion. I don't know if those things specifically, but there's so uh, there's a few s- seasonings or spices that are like staples that you can't have, and it's yeah, it's pretty restrictive, right? But I I do think that like if it can help, you know, try to. And I also think in this study, a week was pretty short. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's worth trying if you do have IBS and nothing seems to help. You don't really want to, yeah. you know, um, maybe do go on medication or anything like here. Yeah, here here's some high but wheat is a big one. Uh, onion, garlic, f- some fruits, um, <laughs> some some vegetables like uh, asparagus, mm-hmm. Brussels sprouts, cauliflower. Those are things that like those are my go- some of my go to vegetables. Yeah. And those are high in FODMAP. Like some low FODMAP veggies would be like uh, bean sprouts, carrots, eggplant, spinach, kale. Our carnivore followers are going to hate hate hearing that one, but <laughs> although that does that does seem really counterintuitive to me that if you have IBS, eat kale because kale is like one of the yeah. worst foods to digest. So that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, that is interesting. But um, yeah. So I don't know if if you have IBS, try low FODMAP. It it may just help. All right, uh, we kind of got a um, shifting to, to a little more serious note here. Um, so Aaron and I, we can no longer uh, promote Element from a, from a legal perspective. Actually, we're we're kind of a little worried. So this past week, uh, the Department of Homeland Security put out a national uh, terrorism bulletin that kind of redefined terrorism. Uh, I'm just going to read some stuff from it. So the, the United States remains in a heightened threat environment fueled by several factors, including an online environment filled with false or misleading narratives and conspiracy theories and other forms of, uh, mis, dis and malinformation. So basically what they're saying here, and I'll go down, they, they explain it a little more here. Here's some key contributing factors, some big things to watch out for that kind of are now falling under the terrorism bucket. The pro- proliferation of false or misleading narratives, which sow discord or undermine public trust in U.S. government institutions. For example, false or misleading narratives regarding unsubstantiated widespread election fraud and COVID-19. Um, that's really the one that really caught our attention and, and it got us a little, a little scary because con- the recommendation, the standard, you know, the, the, the government's stance on sodium intake is currently less than 2300 milligrams per day and we've promoted 
element, which, as you know, has 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. And we've talked many times about how the recommendation, the standard recommendation for sodium is a little skewed. Like you have to take context into account, like somebody eating a whole foods diet, exercising, may need much more than 2,300 milligrams per day. So just taking that standard recommendation is not, not a good idea. And we've, we've pushed that a lot with our element. And what we didn't know is that we were committing an act of terrorism. And we apologize. Um, we did not know that we were terrorizing you, the listener, by by undermining public trust in U.S. government institution as they were making recommendations for sodium intake. Um, we did not mean to do that. And we did not mean to commit an act of terrorism against you. And so in order to kind of leave the terrorist life, we're going to no longer promote element. So... Um, yeah, I, you, you will no longer be able to get your element at drinklmnt.com slash health act. I think we're going to have it up for a little bit longer, but, uh, you know, just so that we don't get official. I'm, I'm hoping that when they go back and listen to this, they'll see that, like, we've repented from our, our terrorism and that they don't uh, they don't lock us up. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. We apologize truly from the bottom of our heart. All right, so that wraps up all of the health headlines of the week. Um, now let's head into our second segment, which is the fail of the week. So what do you have for us, Andy? All right, so meatless Mondays have been a huge thing since like the, I can't remember, I looked it up. It's been four decades, meatless Mondays mm -hmm. have been a been a thing. And New York City just decided to launch Meatless Fridays. Now, the mayor of New York, oh, what's his name? Oh, Eric Adams. He himself follows a plant-based diet, and he said that he his life has been changed by, by moving from a diet of junk food to a plant-based diet, and he wants everyone, all the kids in the school system, to, to switch to an entirely vegan menu on Fridays. Um, this is amid new efforts by city officials and the Biden administration to help provide critical nutrition for millions of kids. Now, I'm not going to go and say that like the the intention here is bad. I, I do think like the mayor, he's a plant based advocate. He his life has been changed. He feels a lot better on a plant based diet. I do think that his intentions here are good, but I think that this is not really thought through very well. So we've, I mean, we've talked about a lot. Most of the listeners at this point know the critical nutrients that are included in meat or animal products like vitamin B, iron, zinc, calcium. And these are all things that are difficult to get uh, sufficiently in a plant-based diet. Not saying that you can't or that you can't supplement, but it's difficult to get, you, know, you, you got to be really intentional about it. Um, and so when you take meat away from kids two days a week now, two of the five days a week, you're really again, depleting them of more nutrients and, and adding in, you know, things that necessarily don't have, aren't nutritionally equivalent. Now, I will say the foods that they are talking about adding in and including on these school lunches aren't bad. Like they're not terrible. Like, okay, a chickpea dish with rice or pasta. Well, okay, that may be pasta. Um, black bean and plantain rice bowl, veggie tacos, those can be made well with whole foods. But a lot of vegan alternatives and if you're mass producing it for a school it's possible that you're going to have some garbage vegetable oil some sugar um more carb heavy that's generally where like 
I call them, call them junk food vegans. Like when you say you want to be vegan, but you know, you don't really want to eat a lot of like vegetables, you resort to a lot of really prepackaged processed foods that are probably doing more harm for you than good. Generally, that doesn't seem the route they're going here. I think they are including some like decent meals, okay, like black beans, chickpeas, some veggie tacos. All right, that's that's better than I thought it would be. But the problem is that you're still taking out really critical nutrients. And and I think a lot of people don't think about this when they think of school lunches. I work with a nonprofit here in Charlotte, so I see it. A lot of kids from low-income areas depend on school lunches for food. Like they that is one meal their 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 parents can't afford to pack them a meal. So they depend on the meals that the school provides. And kids in that situation, I can guarantee you, I would be very surprised if parents who can't afford to provide their kids with a, a, a lunch prepackaged aren't going to make sure that they are supplement supplementing with their B12 and iron and zinc. Like they're not going to have the resources or the funds to be able to do that because that's expensive to properly supplement and it takes time. And so I think while the intention here may be good, I think it's going to do more harm than good. You're basically depleting more, millions of kids who are already um, already deprived nutritionally because, again, most of these kids that depend on this come from a low-income household. You're, you're taking away more nutrients, and I think it's doing more harm than good. There's this, this huge debate between, oh, meat versus vegetables, like, Rather than, okay, why can't we just have both? Why can't we just try to make a menu that is whole foods, that is nutritious? Um, that would be fine if they said, hey, we're going to add more vegetables or we're going to make add more plant-based options. But that's not the focus. The fo focus is not on more vegetables. The, the focus is on less meat. And they even talk about adding in more grains because the, the reason this whole stem all stemmed from USDA coming out for kids' menus, uh, kids' school menus and saying, it needs to include, um, I think, a little less sodium. Um, it needs to include some low-fat options for milk, and it needs to include more whole grains. Or it said 50, of the grains that you offer to the kids, 80% has to be whole grains. So they didn't really even say anything about meat. They just, again, more crap recommendations from USDA for schools. But that's not the focus with the school. The school is like, hey, let's remove meat as opposed to adding more nutritious foods. And I think... I think it's going to do more harm than good. It's going to, this is not good. Like B12, I'll post a study in the show notes. Low B12 for kids destroys their brain and that causes damage that can't be undone. So I think we need to be more careful before um, rolling out policies like this that impact millions of kids. Yeah, and the scary thing is that there's probably no going back. Like once once you switch to a plant-based twice a week, only including meat three days a week, there's no turning back to, okay, well, let's add meat back in especially in the, no pun intended, the climate of what meat's in right now. Right. It being uh, kind of, I don't know, shown as, or it's a scapegoat. what am I to say? It, it's a scapegoat for global warming. I mean, if you look into this, there are ways to make um, raising meat climate not only neutral, but Positive, what am I trying to say? Better for the healing yes. environment. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, now, most meat isn't raised like that, but there are ways to raise it like that. And if there's initiatives to, you know, have these farmers raise their cattle in new ways, like that's that's a win-win. It's a win for the environment. It's a, it's a win for our nutrition. Um, all that to say is that there, there's no adding meat back into the diet because people think more meat are worse for the climate. So 
that's kind of what's scary is the long-term effects of this, the downstream effects. So um, I don't know, we'll see what happens. All right, so let's wrap things up here with our third and final segment, which is our weekly plug. So for me, um, I guess something here I've been kind of experimenting with for the past few weeks, and that is Vivo Barefoot Shoes. Um, now, admittedly, admittedly, I haven't done a ton of research on barefoot shoes on whether they're more beneficial than real shoes. The whole concept here is that in typical shoes, the toe uh, box points at the end, really constricting your toes so they can't spread out like they naturally do when you're barefoot. Barefoot shoes are they're, they're It's zero drop. So from heel to toe, it's completely flat and it has a wide shoe box. So your toes can spread out, meaning when you step, when you take a, a step in a shoe, it's exactly like it, you would feel when you're barefoot. Um, so a lot of people we trust kind of vouch for this type of shoe. So I went and gave it a shot. Um, I've been using these for about four weeks now and I really love them. They feel super comfortable. Um, <clears throat> I've been using them in, in like a CrossFit setting. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't want to like all the way vouch for them because I haven't validated the uh, the research behind these, but I, a lot of people we trust do vouch for these. So I would check them out, look into it, look into the science behind it. Um, super comfortable and I've really loved them. Interesting. I, I've heard of people running in them and just walking around in them. I didn't know that people did them for like lifting and CrossFit. Yeah. I mean, I, you do, you need to be careful because you, it, there's an adjustment period. So like I wouldn't go out and run, you know, a 5k or 10k on concrete with these the first day you get them you do need to adjust because it does use different muscles in the foot and the ankle and even up into the calf like it's using these muscles that you typically don't use when you have a shoe because the shoe kind of acts as a support for your foot right and whereas this you're using all those muscles those micro muscles in between your toes and into the arch and the heel so it is there's an adjustment period you do need to strengthen those muscles before you go and do you know, this crazy CrossFit workout or this crazy run. Yeah, our feet have been used to shoes that really aren't uh, ancestrally accurate. I There's mm -hmm. a guy, the guy that wrote Born to Run, and I cannot think of the author's name now, but he's a big advocate of, I believe, of um, like barefoot running. Yeah. We're just running. There's a lot of books out there on this. Okay. Mm -hmm. So check that, that out. Uh, speaking of meat, my recommendation is for a source where you can get some high quality, 100% grass fed and grass finished beef, sustainably raised, and it is U.S. Wellness Meats. Uh, the website you can just Google U.S. Wellness Meats and it'll pop up. I think the website they changed it's Grassland Beef, but they have so many different options. Not just beef, but they have some pork. They have. Um, sausage they got they got all kinds of stuff they have and different forms too so one thing that i will get our ground beef from here we also get something called uh this uh ground it's going to sound really gross to people but except for the carnivores the ground beef with ground heart kidney and liver in so mm -hmm. if you can't stomach eating organ meats like i can't they have all the organs ground up in the ground beef and it still smells a little funky but it's way easier to eat and actually get organ meats um, on a daily basis in the, w the way that they do it. Um, I'm trying to think what else. They have steak, obviously. I think I've gotten a steak from them before. Mostly I get ground beef from them and then 
pork sausage. This is all good meat. Check it out. U.S. Wellness Meats. And they ship pretty quickly, too. Normally, I can place an order and then um, I get it within a week. So if nice. you plan ahead, it's good stuff. All right. I think that is a wrap with everything. Hope you guys enjoyed. Have a great week. And we'll be back again with another episode next Monday.